Drive Time with Travis Wingfield begins now. Let me check your pulse if you're not fired up. What is up, Dolphins, and welcome to the Drive Time Podcast, part of the Miami Dolphins Podcast Network, covering your team, your Miami Dolphins. How's it going, everybody? I am your host, Travis Wingfield, and on today's show, it's preview day. Feels good to get back to the actual football. The bye week is bye-bye. Now it's eight games to the finish line and then three or four more. We'll see how it goes. Uh, but it starts Sunday at home versus the Raiders. We'll look at the lineups, the matchups, the scheme, the keys to victory, and a whole lot more from the Baptist Health Studios inside the Baptist Health Training Complex. This is the Drive Time Podcast. Finally, a Dolphins game back in our lives, and the bye week was awesome. I got a chance to spend more time with the family. I got a chance to just watch some movies and be alone for a little bit, which you fellow fathers of multiple kids know how difficult that is to find that kind of time. Um, But, like, didn't really... I miss talking Dolphins football, especially like relevant, you know, prevalent things that are coming up down the pike. It was great to talk to JT O'Sullivan, uh, missed out on the guest for the potential Tuesday podcast, wound up taking that day off as far as a podcast goes. But on top of that, the bye week was as sweet as it could have been, right? Even though it was the longest week of the year in terms of how slow it went by since for me, July, probably feel that way for anybody else. I'm sure it did, but Even though it took forever, the Dolphins will now play every single Sunday, except for a Monday game and a Friday game, I suppose, for the next two months plus. So we have that in our lives. Plus, the bye week was absolutely fantastic. I think I last left you guys saying, I hope the Bills can lose tonight. And now that they have lost that game, you know, we'll talk about that scenario here once again because I talked about it on the podcast last week that if you know Miami takes care of business over these next five games, Buffalo has to find their way to a 500 record against really good slate of competition just to prevent Miami from clinching the division before the Christmas Eve game against Dallas. We'll get back into that. Let's go ahead and start here. Excuse me. With the Raiders in town and the locals know the rain and lower temperatures this week have been welcome. In fact, as I record this, it is a downpour on Wednesday. I doubt practice goes outside today, but the good news for those coming into town looking for a nice little late fall getaway from your cold weather is the sunshine comes back for Sunday. The rain, rain, (laughs) the rain ceases on Thursday. And then we head right into an absolutely beautiful weekend and week of South Florida weather. We wait all year for this starting on Friday through next Thursday, Thanksgiving, when the team leaves for New York, it's sunny every day and the high never eclipses 83. And most days it does not eclipse 80. And the lows are at Pretty much 63, 64, 65 across the board every single day. This is the payoff for those six months we have of boiling heat down here. Let's go ahead and get to know these Raiders who come from a very warm climate themselves. Turnover and tumultuous times have been the theme for the Raiders since they moved to Vegas. And it's kind of a bummer. I think the league is better when the Raiders are good. And they're a team that I don't have any ill will towards, you know, in in general. I think some folks that maybe grew up as fans of the league in the 80s feel that way. But... You know, it's hard to hate a team that's, you know, won three or four games a year for like 15 years straight. And like, if you want to talk about all-time pain rankings, that 2016 season where they finally got off the mat and made something of themselves and had like, I think they won 12 games that year, but their quarterback, Derek Carr, he got injured 
I think, the penultimate game of the season, and they wind up starting Connor Cook in a playoff game and lose to the Brock Osweiler-led Texans. That would be like if the Bills started Kyle Allen in that game last January, and we still lost it with Skylar Thompson playing in that game. But then they revert right back to the prior 13 years that they had had before that, a period where they averaged just 4.9 wins a year, and they had back-to-back eight-win seasons in that mix that really propped up what was annually two, three, four wins a year. So 12 and four in 2016, and then six wins, four wins, seven wins, eight wins the next four years. Then back to the playoffs with an interim coach, which is where they're at right now, trying to make that same push for the second time in three years. And they're throwing into the end zone in Cincinnati to tie that game in the wild card round to the eventual AFC champions. They wind up going four and out and followed that up with a six and 11 season last year. But now they're 5-5. Five and five. They've beaten the Giants and Jets. Yeah, a little bit of context there. To get Antonio Pierce's career off to a 2-0 and start as head coach. And, you know, you can talk about the opponents all you want, but they did what they had to do to put themselves in position to maybe make a run with this thing down the stretch. Uh, but they have a big, big, big road test down here in Miami Gardens. 13-point dogs in this game. So that's, those games usually don't go in your favor. But let's go ahead and keep this intro rolling. How was this roster assembled for LV. Well, it's cobbled together by multiple decision makers, and that's usually when you get a pretty pretty rough roster, right? They're still in the post-Gruden Mayock era in terms of holdovers from those rosters, and now they'll be in the midst of another turnover with a dismissal of Josh McDaniels just one and a half years into his run there. It's a tough way to make a living when you consistently turn over your coaching staff because everybody has different flavors, right? But a good example is they signed Jimmy Garoppolo to a three-year contract with a ton of guaranteed money to reunite with his former OC in New England, McDaniels, and now he's gone. And they make the switch to Aiden O'Connell, a fourth-round pick this year. And his top target is an all-pro receiver who signed to play with the previous quarterback, his former college teammate at Fresno State, Derek Carr. You see how this is all kind of getting muddled together. Jacoby Myers, I'm sure a lot of that, his acquisition had to do with Josh McDaniels coming from the Patriots. I thought he was their best offseason move, and why the hell the Patriots let that guy go for that cost to bring in Juju Smith-Schuster is beyond me, but we'll take it. Um, Maybe their best move besides drafting Michael Mayer in the first round from Notre Dame, who I think is going to be a pretty good player. But their offensive line has also seen a ton of turnover. That 2016 team I talked about, that team was good because of an awesome offensive line. And I thought they really propped up like Derek Carr's year that year. But it hasn't been the same for a couple of years. They, they voluntarily cut off pieces like Rodney Hudson. And all of a sudden, they have this cobbled together offensive line that's not playing very well. Their best player was a day three pick in Max Crosby out of Eastern Michigan. And if you follow the Locked On Dolphins podcast back in my time, he was a guy that when I was watching four college football games every single window, every single Saturday, I would watch, you know, Purdue versus Eastern Michigan because a little bit of scratch on the game. And I was like, damn, this Max Crosby guy is pretty good. And he turned out to be pretty good. But he anchors a defensive line that was, again, built through free agency. John Jenkins, you guys know about him. Adam Butler, you know about him. Jerry Tillery, a former first-round draft pick that didn't pan out for the Chargers. But then also the sixth pick in the draft and Tyree Wilson, who has not played well or barely played at all this year. That's how it goes all the way to the back seven. This is a roster where you can just see the lack of draft hits from that previous regime because almost every major contributor is a recent free agent signing and you've already dismissed the you know half of the the pieces in terms of where the scheme was supposed to match up with those players coming in or for you know for instance a guy that was a free agent acquisition that's playing one of their 
playing one of the best on the team right now is linebacker Robert Spillane, who I know all you guys know about because you watched that Jets game and loved that pick that he had on Zach Wilson to put that game to rest. In the defensive backfield, Marcus Epps, again, brought in from Philly, might be the next guy in terms of the best offseason acquisitions. They did a good job of remaking a defense that has struggled for years with this free agency period. But we'll see how long they can hold up for the course of the season because it's not deep in a lot of areas. And his counterpart, Trayvon Merrig, was a guy they did draft in the second round under Mike Mayock, an absolute stud from TCU. Marcus Peters, another guy they signed in free agency this summer. I imagine you'll see rookie Jacorian Bennett along with Nate Hobbs rounding out the secondary. And those are two of the guys that play a lot, or Bennett will, in the absence of Amik Robertson, who went into the fencing posture on Sunday night against the Jets, the same posture that Tua took. Uh, when he was injured against the Bengals. I can't imagine he plays because that would seem to be crazy to me. So if it is Ja'Korian Bennett and um, uh, and Nate Hobbs, sorry, that would be two guys in their defensive back. Well, they actually drafted that are back there. So And along with Trayvon Merrick gives them a three. But you get the idea. Like It's it's a roster that is going to see a ton more changeover next year and a couple years in the, in the future because you'll get a new head coach. And this is a... a uh, what's the word I'm looking for? A merry-go-round, a, you know, musical chairs that you just don't want to be on, man. Tough to make a living that way. How about some storylines for this game? Uh, This feels like we don't talk about this as much as we used to. Maybe it's because air travel has gotten better and, you know, sports science has gotten better, but the cross-country 11 a.m. body clock off of a short week used to be 10 a.m., but they're in the mountain time zone now, I believe, I I think. But you're probably saying to yourself, Travis, short week, not exactly, but, you know, Sunday night is seven hours later than a 1 p.m. kickoff, and that just kind of pushes things back a few hours. So you get the game finished, let's say local time in Vegas by 10 p.m. You're not going to unwind after playing an NFL football game for a few hours. So maybe you go out and you get some dinner. Maybe you go back home and ice up and and watch, you know, Scott Van Pelt, and uh, you don't get to bed until 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning. And so your Monday morning alarm clock comes a little bit earlier than you want. Corrections on Monday, you kind of get pushed back a little bit. But the real data point here is just the 1 p.m. kick for a West Coast operation, or again, formerly West Coast, now I guess Southwest. Um, But how, how have the Raiders fared in such games? This year, they played one East Coast game in the 1 o'clock window, a 38 to 10 drubbing up in Buffalo. Last year, uh, Eastern time zone at 1 p.m., they were 0-3, 0-4 in total because they played a Saturday night game against Pittsburgh. But now I'm curious to go back further because this seems to be a thing, right? They beat Pittsburgh in week two in Pittsburgh back in 2021. That was the last time they won a 1 o'clock kickoff on the East Coast. But since then, they have lost five straight 1 p.m. kicks in the Eastern time zone. And also the heat used to be a thing, and though Vegas is a dry heat, this isn't the old Bay Area climate, right? So acclimation will be there, but not as it is for other teams, I think. Another storyline here is the former Finns connections. Did you guys realize how many former Dolphins they have on their coaching staff? I bet you it didn't because their interim OC slash QBs coach, Bo Hardegree, spent some time here. I'm pretty sure that most of you guys remember the name Jerry Shaplinski. He was the first quarterbacks coach that Brian Flores brought in. He coaches the tight ends out there. Matt Lombardi is an assistant receivers coach. He was here for a minute. Patrick Graham, I know you guys know about him. He's the DC out there. Rob Leonard coached our outside linebackers last year. He's on the defensive line out there. And then Danny Amendola is also an assistant on their staff. To the roster, Brandon Bolden, Jermaine Illuminor spent a camp here. John Jenkins has had a lot of stops here. Adam Butler, there's 10 total guys here that used to be in the Dolphins program. Another storyline, the bye week broke in our favor. Can we capitalize? I've quite literally never experienced a weekend that good in which the Dolphins 
didn't play. The entire division lost. The North and South leaders lost. The team, I think, is the biggest challenge to that North leader also lost the Ravens and Bengals. We found out today that Deshaun Watson has a shoulder season-ending shoulder injury. That's so sad for him, man. I oh, well, that sucks. That's sarcasm. Uh, so we'll see about them. But KC was idle, or else you know if they had lost, it would have nearly undone the loss we had the previous week because you basically catch a game on literally everybody you're contending with in the standings. But now you've spin it forward to the Dolphins playing a football game and capitalizing. Miami's in a position to take care of business. And, you know, scoreboard watching, to me, it makes the game way more fun. I, I love having multiple games. Like, having the Jets and Bills in primetime was awesome. Like, having invested interest there. And that Bills game, like, my heart sank when that field goal missed, man. Then, then the flag came out, and I went back the other direction. Those emotions are so much fun. And it kind of reminds you, like, I was really down in the dumps after that Chiefs loss, right? I just couldn't get over the fact that I still think it's going to cost us the one seed. I really do, which, which sucks. But, um, you know, I was really down in the dumps about that. But that Bills game... You you appreciate that those lows make you realize that those highs are around the corner as well, especially when you have a good football team like the Miami Dolphins do. So that was a great, great week. We'll start scoreboard watching more and more as we go along. But the whole idea here is if the Dolphins just handle their business over the next month, the AFC East is going to be theirs. Dolphins, we've talked about it a million times. Raiders, Jets, Commanders, Titans, Jets. Like, you should go 5-0. and And with the way this, this team plays, the way this quarterback has a super high floor and never seems to lose these games really pays into your benefit – all of a sudden, the Bills now face the Jets. They're at the Eagles by week at the Chiefs home for the Cowboys. And in this in the scenario that Miami does take care of business and wins all five of those games, Buffalo has to go at least at least three and one during that stretch to prevent Miami from clinching the division prior to the Dallas game. Now, assuming five straight wins, yeah, maybe dumb. I, I don't think it is here, but you can see why. All the analytics models now have Miami's division title percentage odds over 75% right now. It's our division to lose, baby. We'll see how it plays out, but this could potentially be the first time that Buffalo and New England don't win 11-plus games, one of the two, since 2002. In fact, the number has been 12-plus games every year except for 2008 when we won the division tie with the Patriots at 11-5, and and 2021 when the Bills went 11-6. and Finally, the AFC East is not a juggernaut outside of Miami. Finally, let's go ahead and take our first break right there, come back on the other side, and preview the Raiders' defense against this Dolphins offense. That's next. Drive Time Podcast, your host, Travis Wingfield, brought to you by AutoNation. Recently, I started grabbing my microphone and holding it up to my face and sitting back and relaxing, and I feel like it makes the podcast better. Do you guys notice that at all? I don't know. Just a little... uh trick of the trade here inside baseball. Let's go ahead and get to this Dolphins offense versus Raiders defense matchup here. And I, you know, if you guys haven't noticed, the best way to make me sensitive on Twitter is to say that I'm biased against or for the Dolphins because yeah, I'm a fan of the team and I do tend to see things in the positive side of things. But I also like the way I feel about this team has been a progression going back to 2020 because I've always thought that Chris 2019 really with the acclimation or accumulation of draft picks and, and just general capital, because I believed in the process. I believed in the players they had. I believe the coaching staff previously had been holding back a lot of the talent they had. And now you've seen that all kind of come to fruition. You've seen the current iteration of this, you know, group uh, attack star players and round out your, your team with game changing talent, like a Tyreek Hill, like a Teron Armstead, like a Jalen Ramsey and on and on and on. Um, so I get so sensitive when I see that on Twitter 
because it's it's not true. I, I just think the Dolphins are a damn good football team, and that's where that comes from. And it's easy for detractors to say, like, Travis is a homer, Travis gets paychecks from the team. Those are both true. But I'll tell you what, in 2021, when this team was 1-5, go listen to those podcasts and go listen to the Jacoby Brissett breakdowns and tell me how I felt about the team back then. So um, the reason I bring this up is because I'm going to tell you I think the Dolphins are going to absolutely roll in this game, and it feels like I say that every single week. I have picked them every game. I I flipped the Eagles pick because Connor didn't play, so I did win that pick technically. Didn't didn't want to win it, but I did. I thought they would perform better against the Chiefs. They they kind of let us down on that one. I, I can I think we all can agree on that, even though they were close to winning it late. But you're going to get more of the same, man. I, I think the Dolphins are going to roll down the back half of the schedule. I think there's there's really one game that I right now where we're at, I would pick us to lose. It's the Baltimore game. But other than that, I think Miami. Right now, with the way things are, I would predict 13-4. and four. I told you about that on the podcast already uh, last week. So that's just kind of a preamble into why uh, I'm going to tell you how Dolphins are going to roll in this game. So Dolphins offense, um, so this Raiders defensive backfield's banged up, man. They, I mentioned Trayvon Merrick. He's played every snap, and Marcus Epps has played 98% of the snaps. They never go three safety, so it's those two guys and those two guys only. And then at corner, they are super, super thin. Marcus Peters... 96% of the snaps. He's a he's a great player. He's a gambler. I think, you know, Tua and Tyreek could get him on one of those single man coverage plays that we get every single week if he takes the cheese on, on a you know a short move or doesn't get enough depth. And then Jacorian Bennett is kind of next in line because Brandon Faison is on IR. He was supposed to be a perimeter starter as well. Uh, safety Roderick Teamer. Maybe this is why they only run two safeties. He's also on IR. So is outside linebacker Darian Butler. But Amik Robertson, their other starting cornerback who plays pretty much every snap uh, in the absence of Brandon Faison, again, he left Sunday's game in the fencing posture. So I just can't imagine he returns to the lineup. It would be irresponsible to have that happen. Jacorian Bennett is his replacement. He was also injured in game but came back in the lineup. But he's Man, I don't know. Uh, inside, Nate Hobbs plays 51% of the snaps. Robertson would kick inside as well. So there's there's a lot of fluidity in the back seven of this defense is what I'm trying to tell you. They're going to have to elevate practice squad corners. I imagine Jack Jones has a chance to play because without Roberts, it, the acquisition of Jones, he's their fifth cornerback. And they're going to have to go into the practice squad to get special teams reps, maybe even perimeter snaps if one guy goes down. So it's... And these are the games where, like, the Dolphins just roll, right? Like, we've seen that, that Cardinals game back in 2020. They were down a bunch of corners. Tua shredded those guys. Even Ryan Fitzpatrick in the Niners game that year, they were down a bunch of corners, and they shredded those guys. Uh, you know, the Panthers game this year, down safeties, got shredded. The, the, the Giants were down corners, got shredded. It's not a good proposition to have missing corners against this Dolphins offense. Um, as far as their upfront grouping goes, uh Bilal Nichols is the leading defensive tackle at 58%. John Jenkins, 55%. Jeremy Tillery, 45%. And then Adam Butler, 45%. So you can, that's all basically half the snaps, right? Those guys are in a pretty consistent rotation. It keeps them fresh. It keeps them going, which is a good thing for them here playing in Miami. Max Crosby doesn't leave the field, 98% of the snaps. Um, Tyree Wilson, 41%. And then Malcolm Koontz, 36%. At linebacker, Robert Spillane never leaves the field. And then Dion Diablo is a 60% snap taker. He's a safety linebacker hybrid. Fun player to watch back there. They're in their base defense 2% of the time. They run a heavy box 15%, which could be construed as like a four defensive back or rather uh, a base package, but it's a lot of short yards, like two, two corners, one safety, everyone else up in the box. A lot of that has to do with the uh, divine Diablo being one of their top guys back there. But their nickel package is 81% of the time. So 
really the closest version in terms of lack of diversity and their scheme to the Bills that we'll see on the schedule. Just crazy splits, but I, I think that Diablo being unique is a big part of that, but also their willingness to run a 6-2 look where they have six down linemen. I mentioned all those guys that play half the snaps. They're not shy about getting all of those guys on the field and then going like Crosby and Wilson off the edge with Spillane and Diablo in the in the box as well. But then they'll go from that to basically skip over their base entirely. It's just one of the more unique deployments we'll see this year. And with 85% of their snaps calling for five or six DB, for a team that's banged up back there right now, I'm curious to see how they adjust to that and how the Dolphins can perhaps try to dictate personnel with their own groupings on offense. Patrick Graham's the defensive coordinator, so you ride or dies here from Locked On know that we did deep dives on the Patrick Graham defense, and that means you know this. Lots of odd fronts. They love that bare front where you cover up the guard, center guard, with you know head up over the both those guys with a two technique, a pair of two techniques, and a zero technique, and that's why you see just one true edge rusher with starter snaps. They roll out three defensive tackles, and wouldn't you know it, John Jenkins was the nose on that team back in back in 2019, and here he is with the Raiders in 2023. But Tillery is a Wilkins Sealer type, a 300-pound defensive tackle that plays more four-eye, five technique off the guard and tackle than he does. The one technique, the the shade off the center, and that's kind of how their whole group is built. But back to the previous point, I think you're afforded a couple of opportunities for how to try to take advantage of that approach. With one, if you get them to match you in short yardage defense, we've seen Miami's ability to go empty from 21 or even 22 personnel, the beauty of Alec Ingold, right? Or number two, get them into those nickel looks and run the football behind a run-oriented package once again, which also is your 21 personnel. Alec Ingold is a unicorn, right? They play a dead split between single and two high pre-snap, which makes sense. Most teams find a way to mix it up. In terms of what structure you typically get, this is where it's different. And this is where it goes back to Flores Boyer style defense. 37% cover three is one of the highest in the entire league. And that almost always pairs with a good deal of single high because the conversion off of that, the defenses will try to confuse opposing quarterbacks with is man free cover one. What does that mean? Cover one is just a single high safety and then man coverage all across the board. Sometimes you can zone things off in other spots, but typically man free single high man across the board. Cover three is where you have a player taking a deep third across the board. So that same single high safety can play the middle center field. And then you have a left field or right field or so to speak at the cornerback positions that get their depth and there's more hook curl flat zones underneath. So Man coverage against Miami is not good, but cover three, there's a a playbook. A lot of playbooks out there will tell you that everything works against cover three, and that's kind of true. So uh, good luck. (laughs) You know, man, like, I don't know. The remaining 45%, they spend uh, 17% of their snaps in quarters, 10% in cover two. Those are two, you know, kind of comparable coverages. We run a lot of that uh, quarters, cover two concepts, cover six, and then the rest, they have some zero and cover six. Those are both under 5%. So basically it's a cover three, cover one defense. It's a lot of the same principles we saw under Flores and Boyer, but a lot less zero and a lot less blitzing. I mentioned less than 5% cover zero. They blitz just 23% of the time, which is the sixth lowest in the NFL. Structurally, it's primarily that C1, C3 look that wants to disguise what they're going to show you. And that's where I think the attrition at cornerback really, really hurts them. It's tough to disguise and make changes on the fly and to adapt to motion and things that happen in the snap like that when you're working in new pieces of the lineup. You see that in coverage. You see it in pass protection. You see it in run defense. It's a tough part of injuries, which is obviously a big part of the game. But how you can employ your system with new pieces, that is what truly makes a great coach. And it's hard to do. It's very, very, very hard to do. Up front, they want to get 
one thing done. One thing and one thing only. Find ways to create 1v1 chances for Max 2x's Crosby. Though he's not someone that needs that to be productive, I'm not sure I've seen a player who outworks his man 100% of the time like this guy. It's, it's insane. The motor is crazy. He's a phenomenal pass rusher. He's athletic. He's bendy. He's strong. He's determined. He's a perfect player. Only Miles Garrett and Micah Parsons draw more double teams, and all three of those guys still have the pass rush production regardless of how you play them. They want to run big body defensive tackle DN game packages and pick off pieces and attempt to get him those one-on-one blocks. So you have to communicate inside very, very well. Patrick Graham runs one of the most in-depth game schemes up front and has big bodies to do it. And Adam Butler, who I think is a big part of that. And the Dolphins interior since the injury to Isaiah Wynn with Connor Williams being in and out of the lineup. And we probably won't have Rob Hunt. It looks like this game, the, the inactivity of in terms of repetition with those three guys on the interior, it's kind of defensive line that can give you some problems because they can execute those games. If you don't get them passed off, it's quick pressure, it's quick hits, it's sacks in your quarterbacks. Uh, Max Crosby has nine and a half sacks, 15 QB hits, 13 tackles for loss, 58 quarterback pressures. That's your primary, your secondary, and your third priority on this team. I doubt you see him rushing Austin Jackson alone very often, and the Jets did do a good job getting their wide running game going a little bit, and we know that Miami can neutralize some of the top pass rushers with one of the best wide zone games and crackback action in the entire National Football League, so there's always an answer uh, solution to those potential issues that you can you can find, but then I think you have to trust the rest of your crew to win the one-on-ones. I, I would be very surprised if you don't see a ton of one slides, isolation slides for Teron Armstead playing the left tackle position because whether it's Tyree Wilson or Malcolm Coons or whoever, it's that's not a good matchup for them. And that's why I think it's important to get practice reps all week for your top five because to handle those games, we have to make sure we know what's coming and be able to prepare for them. It's great to have Connor Williams back in the pivot for that main reason. Again, Adam Butler, just be ready for his quickness. No one has a faster first step at that size than him. And it, it worked for him. He was a big player for us the year that we had him. Uh, here's some numbers real quick and some styles for their, their players. Max Crosby, 58 pressures, leads the team and I think he's top three in the NFL but he's a master of everything Malcolm Koontz has 20 so literally a 60% drop off there I think the math is correct correct Uh, he's a length get off speed convert to power guy he kind of reminds me a little bit of like um, Robert Quinn when we had him here Uh, Adam Butler 17 pressures quick 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 that's my notes there and then Jerry Tillery 16 pressures long heavy-handed and a key to their game packages especially when he pairs with Butler because of how just physical and heavy-handed he is so it's a well-balanced group that has played really well together this year. And, you know, Patrick Graham, not a big blitzer, all-time low for him. I wonder if his blitz percentage being his lowest in his career is partly because his Mike linebacker is one of the best in terms of coverage in the league, 338 snaps in coverage, 40 as a rusher with just 13 pressures, just not his game, but three picks and no TDs allowed and just 280 yards allowed in those coverage snaps. Those are really good numbers. He wants to play forward and side to side to get in the hook zone. So what I think Miami does with how they stretch the hook zone with those 15 to 18 yard routes with the threat of the running game. It's a big, big ask for a guy like Spillane. And he reminds me more of a Landon Roberts than David Long, which is why another reason why I'm thinking the Dolphins are going to have a lot of success in this game. Just to be frank, I don't think he can do it. It's, it's a big ask. There aren't many guys that can, I think you go after him and after him and then pound the middle of that 
defense with the intermediate passing game. And because the coverage structure and skill outside I don't think is up for it either, they're thin there, they play off, they give up zone access inside. I think our quarterback is about to go scorched earth in this one. 350 yards, three touchdowns for Tua Tungabailoa would be very surprised if he does not have a monster day of production here. They've just not had that consistent second perimeter guy outside of Marcus Peters. Amik Robertson was finding his footing there, but he's not going to play. So it's rookie Ja'Cory and Bennett, and PFF has him with 196 coverage snaps and 270 yards allowed. Yikes. I think we go after him. He tips his leverage, and Tua attacks him, chews him up, especially when he expects Spillane to be there to take the inbreakers. But it's just too deep. Those are the two guys I'm kind of putting the... the uh, <clears throat> sombrero on there. I think Miami has a chance to really get both Tyreek and Waddle going in this game. They don't travel. They, they zone turn a lot, and I think that inside access will be there. The key will be keeping the linebackers' attention with the running game, enough to get them to take a step forward, and that's why I'm so pumped to get Devon Achan back, because the way he threatens you with big plays in the running game, it forces you to not be able to get that depth. You just can't afford to let him get free runs in the second level. So him being back, I think, makes for a big day for all three of those playmakers, Waddle, Reek, and Achan. I love their safety combo, but they want to come from depth and fit the run or shade one side. If you go back to their Giants tape, they frequently would flood one side and give you one-on-one access down the field. So deep shots should be be there as well. I just don't see how Miami doesn't score at least 30 points in this game. Let's go ahead and take our last break right there, come back on the other side, and talk about the Dolphins' defense versus Aiden O'Connell and this Raiders' offense. That's next. Drive Time Podcast, your host, Travis Wingfield, brought to you by AutoNation. Wednesday, Raiders, Dolphins, preview. Dolphins are 13-point favorites at Hard Rock Stadium. It's been a long time since that Chiefs loss. I still want that one back. Let's go ahead and make it a big victory here against the Raiders. And they go with Aiden O'Connell at quarterback. Their top receivers are Devontae Adams, who plays 91% of the snaps. Jacoby Myers plays 85%. And then there is a big drop-off to Trey Tucker, who plays 25%. But... On the slot slash tight end positions, Hunter Renfro has kind of been doghoused like until he got until they fired McDaniels, which is crazy, right? Like Renfro, McDaniels makes a bunch of sense, but it didn't really work out for him that way. 37% of the snaps for him. Michael Mayers played 67% the tight end position, and Austin Hooper, 47%. So lots of heavy personnel groupings uh, inside for them. And then their guards are Dylan Parham, Andre James is the center, and Greg Van Rotten is their right guard. Roten, sorry. Uh, their tackles are... If Colton Miller can't go, that usually means Jermaine Illuminor is in there, and then Thayer Munford is also the other tackle in there. And then the running back, Josh Jacobs, plays 78% of the snaps, and nobody else really gets anywhere close to that. Their personnel usage, 61% out of 11 personnel, but this has shifted the last two weeks to give these numbers more pop. 12 personnel is 14%, 21 personnel is 14%, so 28% of your groupings will call for what traditionally is your base defense, which is a lot. It's a lot in this league, and I... I that's actually a lot higher because Pierce, he told you he wants to run the football. Good luck with that strategy. I uh, hope it works out for you when you're not playing Tommy DeVito and Zach Wilson. Some opening notes here. Aiden O'Connell has really bad feet, man. So when he has to like shift or reset, he can kind of scattershot his passes. It leads to misses, potential picks, take away primary taking away his primary leads to mistakes because the footwork does not get aligned. He throws predetermined shots. I think we're going to turn this guy over a couple times. He passes up open one-on-ones and neglects coverage rotating to force the ball into what he saw pre-snap, which is a very rookie thing to do. Their protections don't adjust to the original mic point. 
so you can really confuse their five-man protection calls. I have to imagine, again, that's part of a rookie, and Vic's disguise should cook this dude up. I came away from you know the two-game study of Aiden O'Connell actually more impressed by his processing than I thought I would be. Like I'm not saying it's Tua, but for a guy making just his third start this week, did not expect him to be at the level that he is on that Giants tape especially. The Jets got after him, but their front is crazy. Their coverage is crazy. But you can see that he understands the rules and the why behind certain things. He does pump the ball to Devontae Adams, and I get it. But there are some one-on-one chances to other guys like Jacoby Myers. Huge Jacoby Myers fan. And he can make those plays, but the ball does not always go there. So your first question is, what do you do with Adams? I think you can mix this a la Travis Kelsey. We saw him see Ramsey. We saw him see double teams. We saw him get constant reroutes underneath. I think from there, I would just leave X on Jacoby Myers and just go man him up. I always like X against a 6'2 plus receiver like Myers, a 210 pound receiver like Myers. He just plays better against those guys than he does the shiftier receivers. So that's kind of my matchup I like there. And then uh, Cater Kohu with Hunter Renfro. I always like Cater against most slot receivers, especially against Renfro. For the Dolphins with Vic Fangio, he can change the picture enough to confuse a young quarterback and provide, you know, sticky coverage with your, yeah, it's so nice to have all these guys back, man. X, Ramsey, Cater, Javon, like it's so nice. But a couple of times on that film, O'Connell would spray the football because he took away his first read. He had to reset and come back, and the feet get wonky, and the ball flies. And it always goes back to the feet. And the best way to get bad footwork is to speed things up, generate the bad footwork, generate bad throws, generate uh, turnovers with your pass rush. So I think you can sort of use that processing against him a little bit because he kind of makes his mind up a lot, and you can play with that because he's so adept at getting it out fast, maybe he puts it in harm's way. The key for the Raiders is getting Colt Miller back. Without him, they've struggled with him a lot better. Uh, We'll see about his status, but he did not play against the Jets on Sunday Night Football. And then just some numbers here for them real quick. Uh, Jermaine Illuminor, 96 PBE is is not good at tackle. Dylan Parham, 98.3 is pretty good for a left guard, way up from 94 a year ago. He had some rookie struggles. Andre James, 97.7 is not good for a center. Greg Van Roten, 98, it's good enough. And then Thayer Munford is 94.4 at right tackle. Colt Miller is over 98, so you have to get Colt Miller back. Uh, Munford has really, really struggled with speed off the edge, which to me opens the door for some possibilities, right? I like Jalen Phillips against anybody, but I also like when you can condense him inside and just let Van Ginkle use his speed off the edge when you have a matchup like that. Uh, you can typically get to your NASCAR package you know, on third and long situations, which is why it's so critical to stop the run. But to just move Jalen inside, let Van Ginkle rush off the edge, I don't know if they can handle that. Where I like our chances here is they blow protections a lot. I think we blitz a lot because of our ability to cover up on the back end, but because their protection rules inside have been problematic and they often try to sneak a running back up into the a gap for like you know when they mug up their linebackers and that removes an eligible from the equation that's why i think you see multiple takeaways in this game i think you could potentially hit a few explosive plays in the quick passing game which they'll get those don't get mad on the first drive when they hit like a 14 yard pass on the first third and sixth of the game like it might happen but i think we'll get into situations where we tee off and really force the issue on this quarterback and this offense long and bake should be living in the A-gaps. I, that's what I would do, at least. Extra hats in the running game. They're going to run the football. Use your corner skills to match up and just make life really tough and make him have to make fast decisions against this defense. It's been a bit of a work in progress for them in terms of working as a singular unit. It, they just There's always an issue on the interior, and that probably goes back to the fact that Parham is his first full-time as a starter. Van Rotten's on his third team in three years. I keep saying Rotten. Roten. And then uh, Andre James is up and down, but he's been there for a while now. But Miami has the size 
wise and quicks to really challenge that communication. You better process it right now because if you don't, Steeler and Wilkins will put you on your back. I think we just thump them there, man. There aren't many matchups. In fact, there isn't one that I like for Las Vegas. Maybe Adams could get some of those, but then it's a rookie quarterback. So like, am I really worried about that? No, I'm not. Finally, how do you create pass rush opportunities? Well, you stop the run. They've made no bones about this. They want to play Dave Wanstead ball, which again, good luck. Good luck doing that uh, in 2023. First, Jacobs leads the NFL in carries, but the disparity in first down runs for the Raiders compared to the rest of the league is wild since Pierce took over. You guys watched the Bills and, and Broncos game, right? How frustrating was all those first down handoffs that would go for two or three yards? Like, second eight is not a good place to be, my man. Like, throw the football. It's almost every series they give the ball to Jacobs on first down. So load it up, stop the run, and put O'Connell behind the chains. Again, good luck, man. Good luck. They believe they can move you and Jacobs can wear you down. But in this heat against this offense, you stop that in the first quarter, you score 10 points in the first quarter. Then this game, I think, gets awfully sideways and you force the Raiders to play a game they don't want to play. Start fast. That will be one of our keys. Uh, But he's a physical bruiser. I think you can start with him and then play the rush, you know, rush lanes. Stop Josh Jacobs. You'll stop this offense. Interesting offense. A lot of talent at Aiden O'Connell's disposal. But ultimately, I I don't think it has enough juice to compete with Miami. What's at stake in this game? Every game from here going in is big, especially the conference and division games. This one obviously falling in the former category. But you saw how dropping games can impact your standing literally you know, the rest of the conference last week, right? All those teams lost games and we're sitting here, the, the advantage or the, uh, the beneficiary of that. Let's not give that right back to the pack by dropping a game against a bad football team. The playoff slider only has 8% dispersion this week, more on the negative side of things, a 6% loss in playoff odds and a 2% gain. But the reason for that is because Buffalo is blowing it and we are very heavy favorites to win the AFC East right now. That's why you're going to get those high odds. You have to be thinking division, and then from there it comes down to jockeying for top positions in the conference, the one through four seed. The goal in the past was always to find your way into the top two, right, for that first round bye. That has changed, but now a seven has never beaten a two, and so that means the the only way you're going to get a home divisional game is to get that second seed most likely. So that's to say you can't lose this game and still obtain a top two seed. I mean, mathematically you can. But I think you guys get what I'm saying. Take care of business. My keys to victory, start fast. Anytime you can make an offense with a rookie quarterback one-dimensional, that's going to be tough sledding, especially for a team that's advertising they want to pound the football. Start fast. Hopefully, we don't have a quarter rust to shake off from the bye week. Just get going early. Get that confidence going early, and I would feel pretty good about this team going forward. Number two, find Max Crosby every snap. Locate him, double him, chip him. Make sure he doesn't get a clean runway. He's a game changer. He'll probably get one or two game-changing plays. Don't let it be more than that. Uh, number three, feature the playmakers. Achan back. Waddle looks healthy as hell. Tyreek looks rested. First time you've had all three of these guys together since the Giants game. To me, it's the best three skill players in the NFL on any football team. Get those guys going. Get the perception cranking back up that Miami's unstoppable on offense. And let's have some fun. My areas of concern, I don't have them. Don't let Crosby hit Tua. That's pretty much it. And then my areas to exploit, heat up a rookie quarterback go after the intermediate middle of the field passing game against an inexperienced secondary and just chew these guys up. I'm going to go full bloodbath here on the prediction, guys. I think it's ugly. I think it's ugly for the offense for Vegas. I think what happens when our offense gets a lot of chances in short fields is it gets ugly, 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 ugly. I'm taking a 50 burger here. That's right. You heard me. Crazy. But you, you heard me right. 50 to 13. I know it sounds absurd, and I've predicted a lot of these this year, but this is a very, very lopsided matchup. It probably comes out to like 38-17, which we'll take, right? But I'm going 50-13, and we'll come back with you guys in the podcast tomorrow. The great 
Ted Wynn of The Athletic joins me. And then Friday, former Dolphins quarterback Trent Green, who's on the call on Sunday with Kevin Harlan, joins me as well. Great to get back in the flow of things. That's my time today on the podcast. You all, please be sure to subscribe, rate, review, all that fun stuff. Check me out on social at Wingfield NFL. Check out Seth and Juice on the Fish Tank and the pre- and post-game show. Also, the YouTube channel for media availabilities, Dolphins Today, and so much more up there. And last but not least, MiamiDolphins.com. Until next time, fins up. Carolina Cameron, Daddy. Let's go.